0: I'm Jade Calloway. I've been a presenter at BFBS The Forces Station for nearly 10 years now. I was born just two months before Iraq's president, Saddam Hussein, invaded Kuwait in August 1990. In this series, I'll be learning about the 1991 Gulf War by hearing from those who fought in it.
1: To be honest, it's incredibly vivid still. A sense of pride in in all one's soldiers and what they did. I suppose what I
2: took away from the conflict overall was the importance of teamwork and putting your trust in somebody else.
1: Got to really stop sweating the small stuff because when you're there and you might not come back, you start thinking, well, actually, there's not much in life that's really that important compared to this, so why do we let ourselves get stressed and anxious over tiny things?
0: I think there is a legacy around battlefield trauma and the life support. There's lots of things that have come out of that. Certainly, PTSD is recognised more.
1: It doesn't feel like 30 years at all. The whole operation in Gulf War II was so much slicker, so much quicker, and that was directly as a result of the lessons learned.
0: This is Granby, the storm in the desert. So, we have Operation Granby, Desert Storm, the First Gulf War. What is this conflict called again?
2: Op Granby crops up if you're chatting to other British veterans, but I tend to refer to it as the First Gulf War or Desert Storm.
1: I refer to it, depends on my memory, really. So Granby, Desert Storm, not so much, or Desert Shield, not so much. Gulf War 1. The American ones are the ones that have stuck, certainly. There was Operation Desert Shield, which was the pre-combat phase, and Desert Storm. I have to admit the Americans are very good at this, they're very Hollywood, and Desert Storm was a good one.
3: Yeah, Gulf War One
1: is how I refer to it.
3: I remember it as Desert Storm, but Desert Storm is the American operational name. We were attached to the Americans, basically, even though we led the way.
1: When you were talking to your shipmates, you wouldn't have said, we're on our way to Operation Granby. We just knew that it was the invasion of Kuwait, so that's
0: why we were going. To clarify, the British operation was called Op Granby, a name randomly generated by a computer programme. This is how all British Ops are named, and it's done this way so the name doesn't relate in any way to the action. Granby refers to an 18th century military commander called John Manners, who was the Marquess of Granby. He led British forces in the Seven Years' War against France, and appears to have nothing whatsoever to do with the Middle East or indeed desert warfare. The Americans are more direct when naming their Ops, and called it Operation Desert Shield. And then changed it to Operation Desert Storm at the start of the combat phase. So now we've established what Granby is, let's move on to how this conflict started. On the 2nd of August 1990, Iraq's President Saddam Hussein invaded the tiny oil rich Gulf state of Kuwait. That turned out to be a poor decision.
3: I'm uh, Tom King, I was Lord King, I was Secretary of State for Defence during the first Gulf
0: War. There's a theory about wars starting in summertime. It happens a lot, and August is a particularly popular month for countries to start hostilities. Lord King believes Saddam Hussein saw British and American summertime as an opportunity.
3: From his point of view, I mean, it was incredibly bad luck because I think that they'd worked out. Invade somewhere on August the 2nd, they knew enough about the United States, about the United Kingdom and other countries, that that's when everybody would be going on holiday. Government wouldn't be around. Uh, there would be a big pause while anybody wondered what to do. And it would be the hardest
0: time to get agreement together. Unfortunately for Saddam, two of the most important people in the world were together when they found out the news. The bad luck he had
3: was that Margaret Thatcher had been invited to the Aspen Institute in Colorado uh, for a very special occasion where she made an important speech and and was awarded the medal of the Aspen Institute Medal of Freedom for her work in helping to end the Cold War. And uh, she was to be presented with the medal by flying down from Washington other person than President George Bush, who arrived on the morning that the news came that Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait. So there were, the, bluntly, the only two people in the world Really, with the resources and determination to take some action pretty quickly. We were together at that time and agreed that they would act and uh, we got moving.
0: The Ministry of Defence moved rapidly, sending troops to Saudi Arabia because there was a concern that Saddam wouldn't just stop at Kuwait but would continue into Saudi and take control of the valuable oil fields on the east coast. Mrs Thatcher made it clear that couldn't be allowed to happen.
1: The peaceful solution would be for Iraq to get out of Kuwait. That is a matter for them. We hope they will do it. If not, we shall have to take the military option and
0: see that Iraq does leave Kuwait. In August 1990, Sir John Major was Chancellor of the Exchequer. 30 years on, he recalls the massive diplomatic effort in setting up a coalition to defeat Saddam.
2: The Security Council passed a resolution very early in August, two or three days after Saddam Hussein had uh, brutally invaded uh, Kuwait. And what they did there was brutal. It was absolutely immoral and appalling in every conceivable way. So we did wait for uh, UN approval. And one reason for that was that we wished to have the widest possible coalition. It wasn't just a question of America going on on our own or America and Britain, though we could have done it on our own. It was a question of bringing in as many countries the widest possible coalition we could get. And President Bush, George Bush, H.W. Bush, brought in the largest war coalition that the world had seen since the Second World War. It was an extraordinary piece of diplomacy ...by President Bush and the Secretary of State Jim Baker. And that too takes time. But if you're going to conduct a war in the Middle East... ...you really need a large number of countries from the Middle East... ...within the coalition. And that was what it was possible to uh, manage in that period.
0: This Gulf War was fought by a colossal American-led alliance. 39 countries took part, supplying 670,000 troops... 470,000 from the U.S. and more than 53,000 from the U.K. To put that into context, it was around five times the size of the U.S.-led coalition force deployed at the height of the war in Afghanistan. Within a week of Iraq's invasion, U.S. fighter jets had arrived in the Gulf, quickly followed by the Royal Air Force. Soon, land forces began to deploy in what was to become the biggest build-up of military hardware since the Second World War. So, let's have a look at the state of the world and the British military in 1990. Just months before, the Berlin Wall had come down, marking the end of the Cold War.
1: 28 years and three months after the Berlin Wall went up, the very symbol of East-West divide the most amazing scenes. I'm standing on top of the infamous Berlin Wall, right in front
3: of the Brandenburg Gate. There are thousands and thousands... Well, a lot of people thought that it was all over, that the Cold War that had been lasting for... 40 years ever since the end of the Second World War. But suddenly, uh, when we had the mass of the Soviet Union uh, and you had Germany divided and a Berlin Wall and an Iron Curtain, all that suddenly collapsed. Al- almost overnight, over a couple of, two or three months, it all suddenly happened. And people thought, well, that's it. Uh, we're going to have a peaceful world now. And Russia, as it became, was looking for help and assistance, which we gave them in some respect. And it suddenly seemed that we
0: didn't need anything like the defences that we had. In fact, it had all seemed so peaceful that the government had started planning defence cuts. When I announced
3: a programme for some reductions in the army, the navy and the air force at that time, the, the, the challenge I got was what on earth are we still keeping so many people in uniform? What are they for? And uh, what threat do we really face? And I rather luckily said, well, it's the threat of the unexpected. And three days later, the unexpected happened. Saddam Hussein marched into Kuwait, and suddenly we found ourselves on the edge of what became a major deployment of British forces, together with the United States and other countries as well, to uh, end the invasion of Kuwait.
0: By October 1990, 7th Armoured Brigade, known as the Desert Rats, had left Germany for Saudi Arabia.
1: I'm Patrick Cordingley. 30 years ago, I was Brigadier Patrick Cordingley. I commanded the 7th Armoured Brigade that deployed to the Gulf to try and deal with the Iraqis' invasion into Saudi Arabia. The latest arrivals off the flight from Hamburg. For these men, life in the Desert Kingdom has just begun. When I was told that we were going to go to Sidey River I was actually rather surprised because every other brigade commander in Germany had said they were going to go and I thought well they probably are. But on reflection we were better equipped than anybody else and therefore it was totally logical. What did I feel? I felt nervous to be honest and wondered, as one always does, whether
0: actually this was going to be okay. Was I up for the job? The Desert Rats would be joined by more British troops from Germany a second British Army of the Rhine brigade, which gave the brigadier a bit of a headache. I had a lot of concerns.
1: We were going to be joined by lots of other people from outside the brigade. The brigade was very well trained. We all knew each other, but when suddenly you have another 7,000 soldiers given to you. How was I going to look after these? How were we going to make certain that they all had the same ethos, all understood the way we thought? It was It was a concerning time. How were we going to train?
3: It was a massive deployment. In those terms, and uh, it was a major challenge, and it was a challenge that the armed forces met extremely well, and, and I was very proud of how quickly they deployed. The air force got there first, but the navy had uh, was in the Gulf anyway to an extent, and they built up, and very quickly army units followed as well to put an immediate check on the risk that Saddam Hussein would actually then go further and go into Saudi Arabia. And once he saw us and the Americans arriving, they actually pulled back their forces from being right on the border, ready to cross.
0: Meanwhile, back in the UK, there was a change of leadership at the very top. Awful,
3: quite awful. I mean, it, it, I'd just been out. We were uh, had all our forces, 45,000 troops, one way or another, deployed around the region. There they were, sitting up, going on uh, October, getting into November. How long were they going to be there? Well, you know, the peace talks were still going on. Was Saddam going to get out? Or could he get the message that if he didn't get out, he'd get thrown out, and hope that it could be ended peacefully? And this was all going on, and I went out and saw uh, all our people out there. And I said, "Well, don't worry. You know, the country's right behind you. Prime Minister, you know what she's like. She's uh, look at her over the Falklands. She'll back her to the hilt. And uh, you know, we're shoulder to shoulder on that. And uh, you can be absolutely confident by that." I had to come back two weeks later and saying, "Prime Minister's right behind you. Absolutely firm. Different. <laughs> uh, different Prime Minister. I mean, it wasn't not a good idea to change a Prime Minister in the middle of the war. But anyway, John Major did very well. I mean, he he knew nothing. He." very inexperienced in that area, uh, and pretty new and pretty young in Parliament, and
0: uh, he, he did actually cope very well. The new Prime Minister found himself at the heart of military planning.
2: In determining what needs to be done in circumstances like this, you have to range a lot wider than the actual military strategy. It divides in half. There's a military strategy proposed by the military, but approved by the government. And then there's the ancillary arrangements If you're going to war, you need to make provision for casualties. You need to send nurses out, you need to send doctors out. You need to make arrangements for a whole series of things, including contact home and post. You need to arrange for hospital wards if casualties need to be brought back to the United Kingdom. You need to provide the money. There are a whole range of things that one doesn't immediately think of. You have to think of the wider considerations. Was this war going to spread? Would Saddam Hussein attack Israel and try and bring Israel in the war in order to break up the Arab countries who were in the coalition opposing him. All of those were things that had to be considered. And of course, there were the things we most feared and that the servicemen most feared. And that was that Saddam Hussein had and might use chemical and biological weapons.
1: It takes approximately nine seconds for the hydrogen cyanide to actually build up in a lethal dose. Always at the back of the mind here is the risk of chemical attack. Learning to cope with such a scenario is a top priority.
0: So, as we've heard, Saddam invaded Kuwait in August, but the coalition took its time to get ready for battle.
2: What were we waiting to be ready? We were waiting to see whether we could get a diplomatic uh, conclusion. We didn't think we would be able to, because Saddam Hussein was one of those fanatics who believes what he says, whether it is nonsense or not. So we didn't think that we would get a diplomatic solution, but we had to try, because the alternative was putting uh, young uh, servicemen and women at risk. So we did try. And also the sheer logistics of preparing for an operation of this size are very wide and very deep. We had 47,000 service personnel out there in the theatre. They had to be prepared, they had to be trained, they had to be inoculated against all sorts of different things. They had to be uh, aware of what their specific task would be. This is very lengthy. We weren't in a hurry. We wished to ensure that when we were there, we were there in overwhelming force so that we did not unnecessarily put any of our, uh, our personnel at risk. If it could be avoided, we wished to take action to avoid it, and that took time.
0: The then Defence Secretary, Lord King, says he had the best man for the job leading the British forces, General Sir Peter de la Billière.
3: His great asset was that he knew the Gulf extremely well. He'd served, um, he served actually in Oman. He'd been involved with, and, of course, been in the SAS and the experience in that way. He'd also had tri-service command when he'd been in the Falklands as well. And so he was very well equipped to take it on and he was an
0: excellent choice. But looking back, Sir John Major reckons the most important thing was to have the backing of the public.
2: If you're going to send your armed forces to war, they have a right to assume that their government will ensure that their country is wholly behind them. It's very important that they, when they go to war, they know they have a united country behind them. There was a great deal of effort putting in to getting the uh, opposition parties in the House of Commons on, on board, which they emphatically were. Both Neil Kinnock for Labour and Paddy Ashdown for the Liberal Democrats were wholly on board. It was also important to get the civil authorities on board I spent a lot of time with the churches, with Archbishop Runcie, and with Cardinal Hume, and with uh, the Jewish community. You need to make sure that the whole country is united. For if it is not, it is a very sour position for the young men and women who are out there fighting if they find they haven't got a united nation behind them.
0: So, we've heard from some of those who made the big decisions back in 1990. But what did the armed forces make of the deployment? What was it actually like to be there? Next time on Granby, the storm in the desert. It was a, a roller coaster of emotions because there's the excitement and the anticipation of, you know, we're going out to serve queen and country. But thrown into that was nervousness, fear, anticipation.
1: We were initially quite excited, then disappointed, then excited, and then absolutely terrified. That centred almost entirely on the fear that uh, Saddam Hussein and his troops would use chemical or even biological weapons against us. There
3: was a little bit of apprehension, I suppose. It was a bit of wanting to go, but also realising that I was near two years less fit than I was before.
1: I know I'd signed up to this, but I didn't actually think they'd actually called me to go and do it. Being inoculated against things that you didn't really know about became an issue. And actually, had it been tested anybody back in England? When I asked the MOD this, they said there was a pig running round Portland Down that looked extremely well. That wasn't that encouraging.
0: This is a BFBS podcast produced by Jess Bracey and me, Jade Calloway, with interviews from our friends at Forces News. Sound design and editing is by Joe Carden and our editor is Josella Waldron.